friends, it is good to be before you. My name is Andy Maddock. I'm lead pastor here at Valencia Methodist Church. It's an honor and a privilege to serve you, to partner with you in ministry in the life of this congregation and our myriad ministries and in the ways in which we are present in our community and in our world. Our series has been the manners of faith, minds, your P's and Q's, talking about the polite patterns that we learned as children and how they inform our relationship with God and with the world around us. I'm a, I'm a fundamental believer that some of these lessons that we learn early on in our lives, how to say please, how to say thank you, how to say I'm sorry, how to say you're welcome, ultimately inform the patterns of our relationships that move forward, that ultimately our ability to master those skills serve us well when it comes to how we relate to God, and more importantly, how we relate to one another. So we talk about how these manners of faith inform our faith walk. What we're really talking about is how our faith has informed our culture and our expectation for how we treat one another with dignity and respect, and who we're certainly expected to be as disciples of Christ in the world. We started with please Uh, and with this sense of inviting uh, the pleasure of God and the pleasure of others. Sometimes it takes a while for people to notice what's going on around them. Uh, So after our second week of this, I had both a pastor who served in France and a French teacher both tell me that our signage is incomplete, that the Cibou that's in the middle there on uh, yellow and brown is actually an incomplete phrase. It should be Cibou play, if you please, or other, other variations on that. As it appears on the wall right now, it just says, if you which is a dangerous blank to fill in, right? If you whatever. Um, and so, uh, but I like that idea because I think that all of these are things we lean into with a sense of expectation, right? If you what? Yeah, well, if you please uh, is the pattern of our life. Then we talked about you're welcome and no problem. Uh, this uh, tension of how we receive the gratitude around us, how we practice hospitality, and how we live our lives together. And today we're going to talk about I'm sorry, a powerful phrase. Elton John reminds us that it might in fact be the hardest word. And that Bernie Taupin song reminds us that it comes sometimes at the end when it's too late to say I'm sorry. And we're going to spend the better part of our time this morning unpacking this idea of what sorry means when it's done well, when it's done poorly, uh, and uh, what it means in a theological sense, and then ultimately what the gospel will tell us about being sorry and offering forgiveness. Sorry when they're done well represents the sense that we want to make right a broken pattern in our relationship, that I've done something or said something or been something, driven poorly, whatever the case might be, that I have disrupted and upset your expectation of the world between us. And when I fractured that in some way, I'm sorry serves as a chance to make amends, to express a sense within myself that I don't feel good about what I've done. We see patterns where sorry happens poorly, often in tone of voice. I'm sorry serves as a way of saying, as what is it, Selena Gomez would remind us, sorry, not sorry. Um, You know, that, that we might say that we're sorry, but it's not something that we feel in our hearts and in our lives and in our stories. Becomes something said but not practiced well. If you're worshiping online, you may want to type a comment. I'm going to turn to the room here and ask for a little audience participation. What do you think of when you hear the phrase, famous apology. What are some famous apologies that pop culture, television, and social media have thrust upon us and brought to our laps? What are some famous apologies that come to mind for you? Throw them out. Huh? Is it too late to say I'm sorry? Another song, absolutely. How about people who've offered apologies rather famously on the news and press conferences? What's that? 
My music section over there is building all of these songs into that famous apology pattern. Other thoughts? Famous apologies. First service, we talked about names like Nixon and Clinton. What are you thinking out here? See some head nodding. Other ones? Tiger Woods' famous apology. Jimmy Swaggart's apology for his infidelity and his misuse of Christian funds. Yeah, it just kind of builds from there. Somebody said Will Smith in the first service, and I said, I still think he's working on his, right? He hasn't fully recaptured that. So, but these famous apologies, the ones that most often come to mind are fascinating to me because they're often public characters who are apologizing to you and me for a misdeed that ultimately is about the intimacy and fidelity of a very simple relationship between them and their spouse. My hope is, is that their expression of sorrow, their, their repentance, their change in life is as directed to them as it often is to us, right? We often feel this sense that we have to say to the world, I'm sorry for who I am. Social media has made that very, very likely now. Think of the times that you might have seen on Facebook or on the news, an example of somebody who was recorded in a phase of racism, misogyny, deep hatred, whatever the case might be, that their neighbor is recording them with a cell phone, saying or doing atrocious things. And then 48 hours later, they're on the news, and their apology takes this form. That's not who I am. That's not how I was raised. That's not what I think. I let anger get the better of me. These become famous apologies for us. Well, when we talk about I'm sorry, there are really two parallel cycles of thought. And they both come from what we assume might be a part of the pattern of, in English, what we mean the word sorry to be. One comes from the word sore, that literally has to do with hurting. And actually, in terms of etymology, this is the direction where the word sorry comes from, right? That it implies hurt in some way. And it can mean the hurt that you feel, but really it is an acceptance of the hurt that you've caused another. Now, the other track to that, which I think we use more culturally, is that of sorrow. That rather than physical pain or or, or some sense of experience of it, it deals with how we feel, right? How many times have we heard an apology that takes the form of, I'm sorry I made you feel that way? Or, I'm sorry that you think, fill in the blank. That it becomes a sense of sorrow, a sense of regret for how you feel. I want to invite this idea. For me, sorry is a question of sincerity. And I want to invite a friend of mine forward to help make this possible. Mark, if you'd come forward. Uh, Mark Chang, a parent life of our church here awesome human being. Um, A a little aside, uh, BJJ fighter as well, so I'm I'm not going to, uh, uh, you know, manipulate him in any way. Uh, But I thought it would be valuable because there is a size difference between us here as well. So there's a little bit of abuse of power in some ways, but I'd like to model what I mean by a question of sincerity, if you would, all right? Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. Really? Sorry. How about you, sir? Are you sorry? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Mark. There comes a point. I really thought I was going up over his shoulder. (laughs) Where in my unwillingness to change my pattern, it becomes clear that the words I'm saying don't match the character of my heart. We see that in our children all the time. 
I can think of the apologies that I offered because I was dragged by my earlobe in front of some other adult, usually at church, by my mom to say I'm sorry for something. That when we don't have that hurt part of us that corresponds to the regret of getting caught or a pattern of life, if we do not change the pattern of behavior, we have not truly offered anything of depth and substance. Sorry's big question is, are you sincere about it? And there are apologies that we see in media that just don't pass the sniff test for us, and we are reluctant to understand and forgive. Oftentimes because we say, well, if I was in your shoes, that's not how I would behave. And so our ability to empathize and connect is diminished. A word about the word apology. So if sorry is about soreness or sorrow in that sense of it, I've given you here the Latin roots of the word apology. Logia, logia means word, and we know that, right? In the beginning was the word. It's the same idea in Greek and Latin, this sense of word being the root. Uh, we, th- we see it in biology. We see it in psychology. The ology of things is the study of the word of something. The apo part of that phrase, A-P-O, is a Latin prefix which means off or away from. These are words that set us at a distance. It's interesting to think of it that way. But if you think about it this way, a defense in court is an apology. It's an explanation of an activity. Sometimes in the case of understanding uh, exactly, I want you to know why I did what I did, but in other times it is an explanation that distances us from uh, the, uh, the accusation at hand. So Lady Justice here with the balance, apology are words of defense. In fact, there's a rather famous writing by Plato called the Apologies of Socrates. He is defending his philosophical teacher and the teachings that take place. There is a track within Christianity of biblical study and theological study called apologetics, which is a defense of the Christian gospel and the biblical narrative against its critics, be it of history, truth, or character. So the difference between I'm sorry, smacking Mark without a change of heart, and an apology that are the words off and explaining, well, I've smacked you because I thought it was funny. Yeah, I don't really feel bad about it. I've been having a rough day. That's not who I was. That's not how I was raised. That becomes the apology piece, these words of defense. There's another final layer to this, a nuance from the Christian community. It is the word repentance. Jesus' first gospel sermon is repent and believe the good news. It's what he heard from John the Baptist. And he goes into the synagogue where he was raised. He opens the passage, Isaiah. Repent and believe the good news, for it is here among you today. Repentance comes from a Greek word, metanoia. Metanoia is a fancy word, which means to turn with new understanding. It's not just that you've made the decision to stop slapping Mark Chang. It is that you understand why. You turn with a new understanding of the situation. It is a way of reflecting on a pattern of life or the choices that you've made and to realize with new eyes, the eyes of grace, that I am not headed down the path that I want to proceed down. When I teach repentance, 
to young people, to confirmation classes and whatnot, the analogy I use is a road trip. If I got in my car and I wanted to drive to Phoenix out the 10, and I kept seeing signs that said, San Francisco, 134 miles ahead, I would need to turn. No matter how sorry I felt about it, no matter the justification that I could make and an apology for why I was driving north on the 5 towards San Francisco, if I didn't understand my situation and literally turn my car, would I ever get to the destination I wanted? No. The life of faith is intended to be much the same. If I know I'm living into a pattern of sinfulness and a brokenness that uh, upsets the whole balance of creation at its very foundation in my relationship with God, all of the warning signs are there, and yet I'm never willing to turn with a new understanding. I never get to the destination that God has for me. I've never in my life been accused of being a hellfire and brimstone preacher. It's not my wiring, it's not my pattern, it's not really the model I grew up with. But church, I want to talk to you today about the idea of sin. Sin's a fantastic idea. This fracture of the expectations and hopes of the patterns of relationships between God and me, and also me and the world. Oftentimes the things I need to apologize for and repent from are broken patterns of relationships where I've tried to love God, but really what I'm not doing a good job of is loving my neighbor as I love myself. Those are sins too. Where we're breaking the patterns of health, vitality, hope, love, and grace. The gospel understanding of sin has everything to do with targeting, with missing the mark, with missing the expectation that God has for us in our story in God's word and in God's love and God's hope. I'm, another participation piece. Destrat, I want to invite you up here um, for another little visual metaphor. Some of us are, are slow to learn. I'm going to have you stand about 10 feet over there. I, I bring to you my squishy ball. This ain't, ain't going to hurt him. <laughs> uh, but this is the intent of things. Just two men playing catch, right? The kinds of throws that are easy to manage. This is what God intends for the pattern of our experience. Sin comes from a, a, an archery term of missing the mark. So if the intent of the catch between Dave and I somehow misses its mark, that can take a lot of forms, and so too does sin in our life and our stories. Sometimes sin takes the form of an interaction that looks like this. It's towards the goal but without any effort. Sometimes we say, God, I understand what you want me to do. I understand who you want me to be. I understand the right thing to do here. I don't have the energy, the physical, the spiritual energy to be who you need me to be. I can't love that much. I can't forgive my neighbor for their misdeeds. I can't do the thing I need to do. So sometimes the broken pattern is out of a lack of effort. Ball, if you would. Sometimes sin looks like this. Same effort and energy as the lived life, but you miss the intended mark. That I had every goal to throw it today, but I've got what my wife calls my new everyday glasses on, and the focus was a little off, and I just missed where I wanted to be. I had every intent of living the life of faith and dignity and love, but I've missed the mark. 
And so my turning might be minor because I have the right heart and the right energy, but the outcome isn't what I imagined, if you would, sir. Sometimes sin looks like strong effort, perfect intent, the opposite direction. What happened there, Christine? I thought you were... No? Hashtag sporty? All right, we're musicians. I get it. It's fine. Thanks, Anu. So, so... Applaud the throw. I, I am not athletic by any means. So sometimes our sin life completely turns our back on the intent that God has for us. Everything about the normal pattern and relationship that would just function, that's a well-oiled machine, that is as it is and as we expect it to be, is really on the heart level a turning my back on and moving away from. Thanks, Dave. So this sin dynamic, this struggle that we face, this hardship that we sometimes create for ourselves, told you, not sporty. <laughs> Leave it. Leave it. Keep it. Stick it in your pocket. Squeeze it during the sermon. This biblical idea of sin, whether it be between us and God, or us and neighbor, there's far more at stake and far more at play than just the idea of I didn't do what I was supposed to do or be who I was meant to be. Sometimes it's we can't give God our best, all that God would ask, all that we hope. Sometimes we mean well and do our best and put all of the energy into the busyness of the life of faith, but we just miss by a fraction or a hair of where God would have us to be. And sometimes in the midst of our sinful stubbornness, we just go the other way completely. I had no plans to be at all near, anywhere near the target of who God was asking me to be in relationship with God or relationship with our neighbor. So in the midst of that and how easy it is to miss, right? Anu throws me a little underhand toss from about 10 feet away and out of my bumbly fingers and my new everyday glasses, let me tell you, progressives, I can't catch the ball and I fumble it. God provides us a remedy in the midst of that broken expectation and pattern and that's really where we are when we talk about sorry. It's forgiveness. Forgiveness. To honor that a God who forgives us expects nothing but the same. Lord, forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against us. Let's take a look at our gospel passage for this morning. A witness from the gospel of Matthew about what it means to play in the field of forgiving ourselves and forgiving others. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, great story always starts with Peter's ignorant question. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or my sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, I'm sure Peter thought he was a brilliant tactician in asking this question. He's like, seven is a biblical number. Seven days of creation? God's like seven. Surely the limit of forgiveness for the repeat offense, be it the slapping or the misdirection. Surely seven times is plenty. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. I imagine Peter taking notes. Remember to count past 76. 
Another faithful translation of the Greek is 70 times 7 times, 490. But this is not about the math and trying to figure out how many times the person that comes to mind in this story for you has sinned against you to see if they're at the limit. This isn't practical math. This is holy math. It's hyperbolic on purpose. (coughs) We know that because here's the story that follows. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves and servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Now we know that Jesus is exaggerating here. 10,000 bags of gold at the time of Jesus would take more than 370 years of work to cover the cost of. How does he build up a debt like that? Who responsibly lends somebody that kind of money to get into that much trouble with? 10,000 bags of gold. And since the servant was not able to pay, the master ordered that he, his wife, and his children, and all that he had be sold to pay off his debts. Could you imagine being so sinful, so broken, literally so broke, that the expectation would be to sell everything you have, but more than that, to sell your wife and your children into slavery to cover the cost? At this, the servant fell to his knees before the king, Be patient with me, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Now pay close attention before we go to the next slide. The servant didn't ask to have the debt canceled. He just asked for more time. This isn't the student that says, I didn't write the essay, can you give me an A anyway? Can I get an extension, prof? I didn't get in on time, can I turn it in tomorrow? Be patient with me and I will pay back everything. And instead, out of the pity, out of the empathy that the king feels for the amount of debt that the man carries, he cancels the debt and simply lets him go. But the servant went out. And he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. You could earn that in a couple of months. Grabbed that man and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. It is important to note, church, that's the exact phrase that we read four verses ago. That was his hope in front of the king. But the servant refused. Instead, he went off and he had that man thrown into prison until he could pay back the debt. And note that the system was just as terrible as our for-profit prison systems are now your earning potential in debtors prison is far diminished from if you were just saving and repaying a debt it actually extends the punishment of debt that the other servant would owe oh but when the other servants saw what had happened they were outraged and they went and told their master everything that had happened then the master called that first servant in looks him in the eye you wicked servant he said I canceled all the debts, all the debts that you owed because you begged me. Now, interestingly enough, the king says, because you begged me to, but that was not his begging. He just wanted more time. But out of that, I canceled all of your debts because you begged for my patience, for for my forgiveness, for my mercy. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in his anger, the master handed him over the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. 
the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This is how God would treat us if we fail to appreciate the vast depth, width, and expanse of God's mercy and forgiveness for us. The power of forgiveness is rooted in a simple idea. I'm called to forgive others, to listen and take seriously their sorries even when they're done poorly. Why? Because in my poor ability to offer my true repentance to God, even not just for the places where I didn't try hard enough or just missed the mark, but for all the times where I have gone another way completely, God still offers grace and mercy to me. Why? So that I would learn a pattern that I could sow into the very fabric of the kingdom of God where forgiveness will be our metric. So that I will learn to forgive others. That I will seek it in my I'm sorry's or in my deep repentance and true change of heart. But more than that, I will learn to offer it freely. Because the bag of debt owed to God is so much more than the pittance we owe each other even in the midst of our deepest hurt, if the sorry is sincere, if the desire for right relationship is at the heart of what we do, how can we not but offer forgiveness? How can we not be a people who follow one who looks at his tormentors from the cross and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? How can we not follow one who says, my single commandment is this, love one another, as an expression of the love that you've come to know from God on high. How can we not? Let us pray.